I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 1. This being Christmas time, I'm going to teach on the birth of Jesus. Maybe a little bit different than you might think by the title. But then when have I never, ever not done things differently than you thought? Let's start reading in verse 18, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It said, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make a public example, make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and he took unto him his wife. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. At this time of year, everybody's getting ready for Christmas, and Christmas decorations are going up. The malls are decorated, and sales are taking place, and all the trappings and all the other stuff that takes place around Christmas. And you can even find a few manger scenes around in places that aren't too worried about being politically correct. And it's a good thing. Christmas used to frustrate me because it was all about commercialism. But you know, I was reminded of what Paul said. He said, some people preach Christ trying to make things harder for me in prison. Trying to make it harder for me in my ministry. He said, some preach Christ out of sincerity and some people... People preach Christ because they have an ulterior motive, an evil motive behind it. He said, I'm just glad Jesus is being preached. So that made me start changing my attitude about Christmas and commercialism and so forth. I'm just glad the world stops for a minute and says the name Christ in Christmas. At least in the places that they still say Christmas. I love the manger scenes. I love all the things that go along with Christmas says it relates to Jesus. But you know, of all the beautiful ceremonies and songs and all the things that take place surrounding the birth of Jesus and being born in the manger and all the, the way we've romanticized all of those things, which if you think about it, that's not the way you, you'd want your child to be born. But of all the things that take place and all the, the stuff that we do surrounding Christmas, None of it really matters unless we realize why Jesus was born. Jesus was born to die. He was born to take away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine says that when John the Baptist first came to, to know Jesus, he looked upon him and he said, Behold the Lamb of the world which taketh behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus came for one purpose. And he did a lot of things for us. He showed us what God was like, but that's not why he came. 
He demonstrated the power of God. That's not why he came. He healed multitudes. That's not why he came. He came to take away the sin of the world. He came to die. Now I want you to look with me to a couple of scriptures relating to Jesus and the the importance of the virgin birth. Because I think that's the point where the church is getting weaker and weaker rather than stronger and stronger. There's a lot of churches around the world that don't believe in the virgin birth and won't preach the virgin birth. Whether they're looking at it from a biological or a scientific standpoint or whatever the case might be. They've considered it to be an unimportant fact or an unimportant issue. But it's of, most, it's, it's of greatest importance. Look with me to John chapter 10. Jesus, in talking about himself and his own entry into the world and contrasting himself with the devil said this beginning in verse 1 he said verily verily I say unto you he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold but climbeth up some other way the same as a thief and a robber but he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep now we skip down to verse 10 where it says the thief comes not but for to kill steal and destroy but I am come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly and we recognize that he's talking about the contrast between himself and Satan And thank God for the truth that we have to see the contrast between the devil and our Heavenly Father. And if the church would just get the hold of that one truth, it would answer all their questions about who's doing what in the world. It would answer all their questions about what God wants for us, what's God's will for us, and so forth. But the church seems to miss that too. But when Jesus starts off in verse 1, I don't believe Jesus said anything for adder or for filler or just to add on if it wasn't important. Of all the things Jesus said, the things that the Holy Ghost saved for us are things that I consider to be of greatest importance. And notice what he said. He said, he that entereth up any other way but by the door is a thief and a robber. But he's talking about himself entering in through the door. Now, what's the door and what's the sheepfold? The sheepfold is the earth. The Bible says we are the sheep of his pasture. David said that in the Psalms. So what he's talking about is his entrance into the world. And notice he says that only he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. But the thief comes some other way. In other words, Jesus is saying this. Jesus is saying, it's the fact that I was born of a woman that makes me a worthy representative of God. Here's an important truth that that the Lord has really, really been impressing upon me of the last, well, really the last year. But it seems like the further and further I get into it, the more and more important it becomes to me. And that is, in the Garden of Eden, when man fell, the life of God was lost. The source of Adam's life was the life of God, the Spirit of God, the nature of God within him. And when I say the Spirit of God, I'm not talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit like we think of when we're baptized in the Holy Ghost and begin to speak with other tongues. 
I'm talking about the life of the nature of God. That's the spirit of God too, but I want to make the distinction so you understand what I'm saying. The source of Adam's life was the spirit of God within him. The life that God breathed into him when he became a living soul. He lost that when he fell. The light went out. Spiritual death began to dominate him. The life of God was lost through the misuse of man's authority on the earth. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. He then told man to subdue the earth, have dominion over the earth and subdue it. What he's telling mankind, what he's telling us, is that his original purpose for man was for man to have dominion and authority on the earth. Now, I thought for years that man lost that authority when he sinned in the Garden of Eden. But what sin can undo God's plan? If God's plan was for man to have authority, what does man's mistake, what power does man's mistake have to change God's plan? Is sin that great? Is sin that strong? If sin is that strong, then how could God ever overcome that sin? He couldn't. My point is very simply this. God's original plan was for man to have authority. And since God never changes, that's his plan now. Man didn't lose his place of authority. He lost the life of God. And Jesus came to restore not man's authority because he never lost it. came to restore the life of God. Now Jesus goes on in John chapter 10 and talks about the fact that since he is born into the earth. And remember what John, uh, what John 3 says when Jesus was approached by Nicodemus who came to him in the middle of the night. Jesus said, except a man be born of water, natural birth, and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Well, did Jesus enter into the kingdom of God? Wasn't Jesus operating under the kingdom of God when he was here on the earth? He had to be. That's the authority that delegated to the disciples when they went out healing the sick and doing, casting out devils and doing the same works that he was doing. He identifies that as the kingdom of God in operation. Well, why was Jesus able to enter into the kingdom of God? Was it because he was the son of God, born into the earth? Not according to what he said. He said it was because he was born of a woman. Folks, I'm going to say something that shocks a lot of people and it's going to make a lot of other people mad. God doesn't have authority in the earth. God's the owner of the earth by virtue of the fact that he's the creator of the earth. But he gave man authority on the earth. If man has authority on the earth, that means God doesn't. God didn't say, I'll share my authority with man. He said, let man have dominion. As a human being, you're the one with authority on the earth. But what does the church do? church sits around and says, why did God let this happen? What does God do? God says, why are you asking me when you're the ones with authority? He told man to subdue the earth. He didn't tell man to question him about subduing the earth. He told man to subdue the earth. So Jesus... 
speaking of his own birth into the earth, being born of a woman, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Jesus is saying, I have authority by virtue of the fact that I am a human being. Satan is not and therefore has no authority. Satan had to borrow a body, the body of a serpent, to interact with Eve in the Garden of Eden. You're not on an equal par with with the devil. And he is certainly not greater than you. When it comes to authority, I mean. I'm not sure how it works whether it comes to power. But that doesn't matter because we've got the name of Jesus, which is over all of his power. But he that entereth in by the door, natural birth, is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And he puts forth his own sheep and goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know, not, for they know his voice. And a stranger they will not follow, but flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers." Now, Jesus is summarizing God's purpose for sending him here into the earth. The disciples, as was their nature, the way that they operated most commonly, didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. So it says in verse 6, This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things which were spoken unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again. So now he's explaining the first part of the chapter. Then he said to them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now the door he's talking about in verse 6 or verse 7 is not the door that he's talking about in verse 1. The door he's talking about in verse 1 is natural birth. The door he's talking about in verse 7 is the door through which he, the sheep follow him. He's explaining the last part. Of, what, of the parable that he spoke to him in the, early part, the earlier verses. So what he's saying is very simply this. He's saying, I was sent to the door of natural birth, through the virgin birth, into the earth, to accomplish the plan of God to restore life unto mankind. As such, through my death, the door of eternal life will be opened, and you can follow me through. So he says, I am the door of the sheep. Well, he is the door into eternal life, isn't he? He's the only way. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. See, in verse 1, let's go back and look with me at verse 1 in having said this. Notice it says, he that enters in by the door into the sheepfold, but... Let me just read it. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Some people have talked about that being an entrance into heaven. Well, what other way is there into heaven except through Jesus? There is no back stairway. So what he's talking about is, is not the entrance into heaven. He's talking about the entrance into the earth. Well, there's only one way to enter into the earth, and that's through natural birth. So now when he gets to verse 7, I'm the door of the sheep, and now he's talking not about the door into the earth, he's talking about the door into heaven or into eternal life. 
All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now, what is he talking about all those that came before him? He means anything that has ever claimed, any work of the devil that has ever claimed to be the way to God, except through him, through Jesus, is a lie. That means Buddhism is a lie. That means Islam is a lie. That means Confucianism is a lie. That means New Age is a lie. It means every other religion, every other form of philosophy or anything else that claims to be the way to God is a lie. According to Jesus. Verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he's talking about the door into eternal life. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. The thief wants to do one of, only one thing and he does it in a couple of ways. He wants to rob from you the blessings of eternal life or the life of God. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal your health. He wants to steal your finances. He wants to steal God's plan for your life. That's his only purpose. Jesus' only purpose is to see that you have that which is good and that which pertains to life, which can only come from God. Every good thing comes from God. Jesus' purpose is to see that you enter into every good thing that God has provided for you. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He's talking about his purpose here on the earth. His purpose was to die. Jesus came to the earth to die, to make a way for you to enter into eternal life. Jesus never lost sight of that purpose. That overrode everything that was going on, every moment of his life. He was constantly aware of his purpose. To die. Now I want you to look with me over to Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 5 it says. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I understand why the translators were, had a tough time with this. And the, the language, the wording of the translation in the, in the English is really difficult. Because they try to make it, uh, they, they appear to make it seem the exact opposite of what is being said. And, it, and as a result, they seem to miss the point. Here where it says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. The Holy Ghost is saying, learn to think like God. Have the same attitude that Jesus had. Well, what was Jesus' attitude? Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This means just exactly the opposite of the way that it's translated. It literally means who being in the form of God, God in pre-incarnate form, before the world was, was ever formed or created, Jesus was equal with the Father. But that wasn't something that he held on to. Here where it says he thought it not robbery to be equal with God literally means 
He didn't hold on to that. He didn't hang on to that and miss God's plan and purpose. God's plan and purpose was to send Jesus to the earth. Well, he couldn't do that unless Jesus consented. That couldn't take place unless Jesus turned loose of some things to leave heaven and come to the earth. And that's what that verse means. Who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Verse 7, here's what he turned loose of. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. In other words, it's telling us that Jesus emptied himself. And many translations translate verse 7 that way. He emptied himself. Now, I've never found a translation that tells you what he emptied himself of. But it's talking about Jesus in two different forms. It's talking about Jesus before the world begins as a part of the Godhead, the Trinity, equal with God the Father, the Almighty God. And then he's talking about Jesus in human form on the earth. Something changed according to verse 7. Well, what did, it, what did he empty himself of? What did he turn loose of? In John chapter 17, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, part of his prayer is this. Father, give me back the glory I had with you with, before the world began. So if Jesus is praying that in John chapter 17 when he's on the earth, that means he doesn't have the same glory he had with God the Father before the world was created. Are you with me? So then clearly, that's one thing that he emptied himself of. Well, that's exactly what these words mean. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth and was found in the fashion or the likeness of a man. What does that mean? That means Jesus could not have operated here on the earth as the son of God. Now, don't get me wrong. He was the son of God. He was born of the Spirit of God in the virgin, the virgin's womb. He had the nature of God, but he didn't have the power of the Son of God. He emptied himself of that. See, folks, what the Holy Ghost seems to keep bringing to my, to my understanding and trying to hammer home, and I, I guess I'm just dense because he keeps going over it again and again and again, is this. It was the misuse of man's authority that caused man to lose the life of God. Therefore, it can only be through the right use of a man's authority for that life to be restored. God doesn't have authority on the earth because he gave it to man. So Jesus had to become a man. church world seems to have the idea that God can do anything he wants to anytime in any way that he wants to do it well that might be true up to the point where he would violate his word and if he takes back authority that he's given in the man then he's violated his word so there are things that the church world maybe we as individuals ask God to do that we're supposed to be doing on our own with his help by his will But so much of the church world seems to be abdicating their position of authority, trying to get God to take it back. And it'll never happen that way. 
So where it says Jesus emptied himself, it means he turned loose of his heavenly power and glory. Put yourself in his position. Would you have been willing to do that? God's plan for man included Jesus coming to the earth as a human being. He really was a baby. Really was born of a woman. It was a supernatural birth because she was a virgin. But it really happened. It's not a fairy tale. Jesus and the Easter Bunny are not co-equal. So many times the things that God gives us to do and sets before us don't look like they're going to end up where we think they're going to. When Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory, he knew what God's plan was. Sometimes when God sets his plan before us, we don't know what the end result's going to be. We just have to trust the one who's given us his plan. Turn with me over to John chapter 5 now. Let me prove this to you. John chapter 5, verse 26. Jesus said, for as the father has life in himself, so has he given the son to have life in himself. He's saying, I've got the same life that God has. Well, that's the condition that Adam was in before the fall, is it not? That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. When he bypassed the seed of a man, he bypassed the law of sin and death that had been passed upon all men. For the church to say that the virgin birth was an unimportant point or to suggest that it's not factual flies in the face of everything Jesus was equipped to do. Denies Jesus' authority on the earth. Jesus said, as the father has life in himself, so is he given to the son to have life in himself. And, verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the son of man. Notice it doesn't say because he's the son of God. Because he's the son of man. So if Jesus was born into the earth as a man, which he had to be to have any authority here, and he considers that an important enough point to make an issue of it in John chapter 10. And here again, he identifies himself as the son of man, which he does 60 out of 65 times in the four gospels. Only five times out of 60 does he identify himself as the son of God, and three of those are in the same setting. Now, he understands the importance. He understands the significance. He said, I've been given authority to execute judgment because I'm the son of man. And what judgment did he execute? He's already said before in, his, in, the, four, in the, the Gospels, talking to the disciples, that he didn't come to execute judgment on man. He didn't come to condemn man. Well, then what's he executing judgment on? First John 3, 8 says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. He executed judgment on sin and death. 
Now, why was he able to execute judgment on sin and death? Because he was the son of God? No, he said because he was the son of man. It was man's authority that enabled Jesus to be the sacrifice. It was the man's authority that he gained by being born of a woman that enabled him to be the worthy sacrifice for mankind. The church gets hung up on the idea, how could God die? Folks, if God died, man wasn't redeemed. But if a man born of God died, then the price could be paid. And that's the reason why Jesus had to be anointed of the Holy Ghost. If Jesus is operating here on the earth as the Son of God, what's the point in him being anointed? He would already have the power of God at his disposal. And if he's the Son of God on the earth, operating as the Son of God on the earth, who can anoint God? With what power can you anoint God? Isn't God the ultimate of power? Yet that's exactly what the Bible tells us. Luke chapter 3 tells us of when he was born in Uh, when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Ghost descended on him in bodily shape like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, Thou art my son, my beloved son, in in thee I am well pleased. Tells us that Jesus was 30 years of age and then tells us his lineage. Chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Tells us about the temptation that he endured by the devil. Verse 14, and Jesus returned, following the temptation of the devil. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. Now, why is there a power upon him that was not there before? Well, he says it is because he's anointed of the Holy Ghost. That means before Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost, he didn't have the power to heal any more than you and I do as human beings. That means before Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost, he didn't have the power to do any miracles any more than any other human being could. That's what he emptied himself of, folks, in order to come to the earth to gain man's authority to do the work of God to pay the price for sin and death. Now, it tells us immediately, and I don't think this is accidental. It tells us immediately after the power of the Spirit was upon him and he returned. Verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the Sabbath day on the Sabbath. Sabbath. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. He looked for this scripture and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down in the eyes of of them all that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. 
And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying, This is talking about me and it's talking about now. Now, why didn't Jesus find that scripture when he was 12 years old and left behind in the trip to Jerusalem on the, at the feast day, the time of the feast, when his parents left without him, without their knowledge, had to go back, and they found him sitting in the temple talking to the priests, the rabbis. They were asking him questions and were amazed at his answers. He was asking them questions that they couldn't answer. Why didn't he tell them then? Why didn't he say, oh, by the way, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me? I mean, that would have been the crowd to tell. He's anointed me to preach the gospel before and so forth. And this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears because it wasn't. It was only fulfilled when he was anointed of the Holy Ghost after the baptism by John. He was only empowered to do signs and wonders and miracles, to heal the sick, to cast out devils. After the power of the Holy Ghost came upon him. And that occurred when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. What am I saying? I'm saying very simply this, folks. God's plan for man was for Jesus to restore the life of God to mankind. In order to do that, he had to become a man to use man's authority on the earth. But he didn't heal Based on the fact that he was born of God, he healed and did miracles based on the fact that he was a man anointed of the Holy Ghost. Guess what you are? A man or a woman born of God, anointed of the Holy Ghost. That's the example that Jesus was unto us. He wasn't an example because he was the son of God. He was an example because he was born as a man, just like you and me, just like all of mankind, born of the spirit of God and equipped by God to do a specific work. And that qualified him and only that qualified him to take away the sin of the world. Now, before we close this morning, I want to talk to you about one more thing. We've talked about God's plan for man in a general sense as far as his purpose for Jesus to die for your sins and mine. Let's talk about his plan for Mary. Look back with me to Luke chapter 1. Let's start reading in verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's, Mary, the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this would be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. 
And the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Verse 38. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Mary's engaged to Joseph which meant a lot more in those days than engagements do in our day. People get engaged in breaking engagements, you know, in a frequent or casual manner. It's not the way you did it within, uh, with arranged marriages in those days. When you were espoused, or what we would call engaged, it was the same thing as marriage, only you hadn't entered into the marriage ceremony. You'd been promised, you'd been pledged, there'd been exchanges made between families. My point is very simply this. The angel comes at the most inopportune time of Mary's life. She's got plans. She's got her life set out. Now the plans for her life may not look like the plans for young people's lives nowadays. Everybody seems nowadays to try to be making money, coming up with a plan to make some money or have a career or to be a rock star or discover to be on TV or at least be a reality TV star. That must be the case because they take pictures of themselves everywhere they go. (laughs) I got to be careful here. I don't want to get off track. That doesn't mean that Mary's plans were any less significant to her. Than somebody's plans would be today. But to Mary, to Mary, the angel says, God's got a different plan. Now this, we can read this quickly. And it's easy to assume or to imagine that Mary didn't think this thing through all the way. That maybe she answered and then after the fact started thinking and saying, oh my gosh, what have I done? But the fact that the Bible says that she cast in her mind what manner of salutation this would be tells us that this was a long enough thing for her to think through some things, some parts of it. Now, the part where the angel says that the Holy Ghost is going to overshadow you and you'll be with child. That's hard for me to imagine that that's all the detail that was given. That's hard for me to imagine that Mary didn't say, Now, wait a minute, what? Exactly how will that take place? It's not a matter of doubt. She's just questioning. I've never been with a man. Many women have to get together to have children for a woman to become pregnant. So how's this going to work? It's also an indication to us that this is so far beyond anything that anybody has ever known to be possible. 
But the angel has to tell her of something else that would seem impossible concerning her cousin Elizabeth and her pregnancy to help to encourage her. Don't worry, God can do this. Now, how is this going to affect Mary's life? Well, I'm just dull enough to think that one of the first things she's going to be considering is how is this going to affect Joseph and my marriage plans? How am I going to explain to Joseph that I'm pregnant, but don't worry, it wasn't another guy? That'd be a pretty serious conversation, wouldn't it? There were a lot of things she must, must not have had the answers for. But folks, my point is this. God seems to be wrecking her plans. Does Mary have enough information from what we read in this passage to know that Jesus is going to be the redeemer of the world? All we know is that the angel said he'd be a king forever. Does she have enough information to know that Jesus is going to die for sin? Does she have enough information to know that Jesus is going to make a way for eternal life for all of mankind? See, any of those things, in my thinking, at least according to our knowledge of the present day, might have been enough to say yes to. She didn't know any of that. She doesn't know how society's going to treat her. She doesn't know how Joseph's going to handle this. We read earlier in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph was a just man. And so he didn't want to make a public example of her, which he had every right to do. So he put her away privately. It's subject to interpretation, but it could easily be argued that since the espousal was a significant part of the marriage relationship, she could have been stoned for having adultery just like the woman was that was brought to Jesus. But God had a plan. It sure didn't look like the plan that Mary had. But folks, I want you to consider something. God's plan never robs you of anything good. Every good thing that Mary wanted from her marriage relationship in her life, she got and more. The things that we think are going to take us off our track, the plan that we have for our own life and our own well-being, those things are realized or surpassed in such a way that we don't even care that it changed. I know in my own situation, I'd finished college. I'd gone to school forever. I was on the six-year plan. And that was because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I, well, I say I graduated. I haven't graduated from college. I've got three hours left. I've got a marketing class that I never finished. I'm sorry if that makes you want to leave the church now, but 
I'm three hours short of a degree. I've got enough hours for two degrees. Just not in the right stuff, and so I never got a diploma. That's really a shame. I can't tell you how much that bugs me. <laughs> but I'd gone to school for forever. What seemed to me like was forever. I'd been accepted into law school. And so part of me was thinking, well, I'll, I need to do something with all this school that I had. So maybe I'll go to law school and make some money as a lawyer. Didn't want to do that. I was toying with the idea of making a living on sports. I wasn't a top-tier athlete, but I was certainly good enough to go overseas and play professional basketball there. And that would have been a six-figure-plus income. So I was considering that. I was in debt up to my eyeballs. Now, the amount of money that I was in debt for in those days doesn't sound like a whole lot of money today. But when you don't have the ability to pay, anything looks like a lot. The last thing in the world I wanted to do was what God told me to do. He told me to go to Bible school. He didn't tell me to finish college. He told me to go to Bible school. What in the world am I going to do with Bible school degree? Why in the world would I want to go to Bible school? He hadn't talked to me about being in the ministry. That's not why I went to Bible school. I didn't go to Bible school to become a pastor. I had no inkling of that as being part of the plan. I just saw something in the people that were going to the Bible school that was more than what I had. And there was something about that that drew me. There was something about their knowledge of God or the love for God or desire for God. I didn't know what it was. All I knew was, was, was that they had something that I didn't have. And since everybody that was at that Bible school seemed to have it, that must be the place you go to get it. Folks, I'm not talking about some deep theory of thought here. I'm, it's just the way it looked to me. Well, I knew when I first started considering going, I knew that's what I was supposed to do. I didn't have the money to get there. I was past the deadline for registering. Went late. And that was one of the things they said you couldn't do. But I did. And it changed the course of my life. It put me in contact with a man that became my spiritual father. Now, if anywhere along the way, if the Lord had said to me, and of course we'd like for it to be in a supernatural way, spectacular way perhaps, where it happened in a dream or happened in some way in a vision or something like that, that we'd know that we know that we know that this is it. If anywhere along the way the Lord had said, now I want you to go to Bible school, and I'm going to hook you up with a man that's a prophet. He's going to become your spiritual father. He's going to show you how to hear my voice. And then it'll lead you into the ministry that I have for you. And it'll make a big difference in your life. I could have accepted that. I'd have gone for that. I loved God from the time I was a child. I could have gone for that. But the way that it came seemed to get in the way of everything that I thought that I wanted to do. And I've found over the years that that's not uncommon. So what you have to do is very simply this. You have to decide if God is able to be trusted 
if his plan for your life is able to be trusted to be greater than your plan for your life because he knows the future and you don't. You have to come to the place where you realize or decide for yourself whether or not God is bigger than the plans that you made. I found that God's bigger than law school. I found that God's bigger than making money. I found that God's bigger than professional sports and the money that comes along with that. I found out God's bigger than all of those things. Well, so here we are. We're preaching to over 35,000 people a week. At the beginning of the year, our website was being accessed by 55 different countries for the teaching and the podcast and those things. Just found out last week that I'm teaching every day in the Philippines on TV. Who knew? And I'm a little fish. I mean, in the scheme of things, I'm hardly a dot on the map. So what are we to believe? Look with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. I got to tell you something, folks. There were things that I did before I had a desire to know God in a greater way that would have seemed to derail God's plan. There were things that I did and things that I didn't do that looking back at it it makes it look now like it was impossible for God's plan to be realized. But no matter where you are, you're never too far away from God to get back in his will. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. The word thoughts means intentions and plans. God says, I know the plans that I have for you. I know my intentions towards you. Now, at the time that he wrote this, at the time Jeremiah spoke these things to the people, Israel was in captivity to Babylon. And there were competing prophets. Some prophets were saying to rebel against Babylon. God wants us to rebel. God wants us to take back our own freedom and so forth. And Jeremiah was one of the ones that was told by God to tell the people, don't fight against Babylon. Stay where you are. Serve God in the condition that you're in. Serve God in your captivity. These were a people without hope. These were a people that had, were aware that their condition had been caused by their own rebellion and their own sin. It was a fulfillment of what God said would happen if they rebelled, and they did, and it did. And there were a lot of people that didn't, didn't want to accept it. They wanted to just keep fighting. It's an amazing thing to me how people that fight themselves out of the will of God want to keep fighting and keep themselves further and further out of his will. But Jeremiah said, on behalf of God, I know what my plans are for you. Now, folks, if God had a plan for them and he doesn't have a plan for you, then the Bible is a lie. Because the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. So if God had a plan for them, 
That means he has to have a plan for everybody. That includes you and me. So he said, I know the thoughts and the plans that I have for you. My plans are to, to thoughts of peace or intentions of peace. The word peace is the word shalom. It's translated prosperity in the other places in the Old Testament. Plans to prosper you are to do you good and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Expected means hope. End means good future. My plans are to prosper you, God said, not to harm you. The thief is the one that wants to harm you. God only wants to do you good. And his plans are to make you increase. His plans are to bless you. His plans are to give you hope. You may be in a situation where it looks like you don't have any hope either. The circumstances may be such that you are robbed of hope. But his plans are to give you hope and a good future. My future is better than anything I could have planned for myself. I'm debt free. I'm not a millionaire. But I'm on my way. Don't really care if I get there or not. But God keeps increasing us more and more. As the Bible says he will. I have peace. I've got a family that loves God. I've got a growing family. I've got grandkids now that like me. <laughs> I see the miracles in, in small things. I've got a family that stretches worldwide. I couldn't have gotten that on my own. I couldn't have gotten that through my own plans. God's plans are always better than ours. God's plans for Mary wasn't to take anything from her, even though there were questionable parts of how it would work out. His plans are just as good for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that your plans are for us to have hope and a good future. Plans to do us good and not do us evil. We thank you, Lord, that your plans are for us to continue the work of Jesus on the earth. To break the power of the devil over areas of our own lives and over the lives of others. Father, I pray that this holiday season, this Christmas time, would be the greatest one we've ever experienced. That it would have meaning like never before. That we would find purpose like never before. That we would see your hand and your plan and your will like never before. Father, I pray even as David prayed in the Psalms, that you would make our way plain before your face. that you would make it clear the steps that we are to take that you would make certain the direction you want us to go I thank you Lord for divine direction for each and every one of the people that you've made a part of our family in Jesus name divine direction 
Father, I thank you for leading us and guiding us by the Holy Ghost who guides us into all reality. I thank you for guiding us into the reality of who we are in Christ, what Jesus has provided for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, for guiding us into healing and how to obtain it and receive it, for guiding us into your, fi- your plan for us financially, for guiding us into all reality. Lord, I pray that you would make us worthy of the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for us. That we would make commitments and determinations to lay aside all the things of this earth and to operate according to the kingdom of God while we're here. I thank you for making it so, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, let's all stand. I want to encourage you to think on something. And that's this. I want you to think, to meditate on the fact that God's got a greater plan for you than what you know. There's something more about God's plan than what you've realized so far. The more we focus on that, the more open we will be to hearing from Him and to walking in it. Amen? Amen. Well, let's say this together. Say this after me. God's got a plan for my life. And He's showing me what it is. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. And you're dismissed.